have your teachers greet you, and if you've not yet registered your children, parents, we invite you to do so at this time. Have your Bible with you, would you please go ahead and open up to the book of Esther, Esther chapter 9. And just by way of reminder, if somehow you slipped in and you missed the tables in the upper lobby with the Lord's Supper elements, we'll be taking the Lord's Supper towards the end of our time together this morning. And if you happen to miss these, uh, now would be a good time to go ahead and slip out and grab one and bring it back to your seat, uh, as we'll not be passing them uh, as part of the service today. Uh, Esther chapter 9, and this is our last Sunday in the book of Esther. Always mixed feelings when we get to a Sunday like this, because uh, I've come to love the book, and now we're going to say goodbye, but we finish uh, on a mountaintop. It's really beautiful. Uh, and next week, we're going to begin our Advent sermon series. I'd love for you to plan on being with us all throughout the Advent season as we worship together. The story of Esther has been uh, a really beautiful study for us. You know, on the surface, the story of Esther is one of conflict between the evil Haman and the Jewish people. But on a deeper level, it's a story that evaluates two competing theories of how the world works. On the one hand is the apparent callousness and injustice and cruelty of fate, especially embodied by random chance, the casting of lots. But on the other side is the secret providence of God embodied in the invisible divine hand, which is at work even when we cannot see it, when we do not understand it, and sometimes when we even doubt whether or not it's even there. And so Esther, perhaps more than any other Old Testament book, shows us that God must be trusted when he cannot be seen and that we must live by faith and not by sight. On the surface, the world around us may look senseless, like injustice is having its way or that things are just left up to chance or fate. But below the surface is the invisible and providential and kind hand of God orchestrating all things to accomplish his purpose. And that's why my argument is that the book of Esther is perhaps the most relatable book of the Old Testament for our experience. It happens in a palace, and we know nothing about that. But to live in a world that seems chaotic, but to trust that there's a God who is at work, puts us right in step with Esther and Mordecai. Now, throughout the story, we saw conflict build all the way up to chapter 6. At chapter 6, the story pivots, and all that previous conflict and hurt begins to be reversed by God. And when we get to chapter 9, we see the apex of the reversal. It's battle day. It's warfare day. And for some, it's warfare days. But in all of this, we see God finally, ultimately, deliver his people from their enemies in the kingdom of Persia. And when all the fighting was done, the one question that lingered was this. What now? We're done with the fight. We've experienced this deliverance. What do we do now? It's the same question that lingers for you and I as people who have experienced a deliverance greater than what Esther and Mordecai knew, a deliverance by faith in Jesus Christ. What now? So my goal today is to close out the book of Esther and to compel you to live a life that celebrates your deliverance by Jesus Christ. And I'm going to do that by showing you two things that delivered people do. Very simple this morning. So I want you to follow along with me as I read. I'm going to start in chapter 9, verse 1. 
And we're going to go to the end of the book. The king's command and law went into effect on the 13th day of the 12th month, the month Adar. On the day when the Jews' enemies had hoped to overpower them, just the opposite happened. The Jews overpowered those who hated them. In each of King Ahasuerus' provinces, the Jews assembled in their cities to attack those who intended to harm them. Not a single person could withstand them. Fear of them fell on every nationality. All the officials of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and the royal civil administrators aided the Jews because they feared Mordecai. For Mordecai exercised great power in the palace and his fame spread throughout the provinces as he became more and more powerful. The Jews put all their enemies to the sword, killing and destroying them. They did what they pleased to those who hated them. In the fortress of Susa, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, including Parshandatha, Dalphon, Ashpatha, Poratha, Adelia, Eridatha, Parmashta, Erisai, Eridai, and Vizatha. They killed these ten sons of Haman, son of Hamidatha, the enemy of the Jews. However, they did not seize any plunder. On that day, the number of people killed in the fortress of Susa was reported to the king. The king said to Queen Esther, In the fortress of Susa, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men, including Haman's ten sons. What have they done in the rest of the royal provinces? Whatever you ask will be given to you. Whatever you seek will also be done. Esther answered, If it pleases the king, may the Jews who are in Susa also have tomorrow to carry out today's law. And may the bodies of Haman's ten sons be hung on the gallows. The king gave the orders for this to be done, so a law was announced in Susa, and they hung the bodies of Haman's ten sons. The Jews in Susa assembled again on the 14th day of the month of Adar and killed 300 men in Susa, but they did not seize any plunder. The rest of the Jews in the royal provinces assembled, defended themselves, and gained relief from their enemies. They killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they did not seize any plunder. They fought on the 13th day of the month of Adar and rested on the 14th, and it became a day of feasting and rejoicing. But the Jews in Susa had assembled on the 13th and 14th days of the month. They resisted, or excuse me, they rested on the 15th day of the month, and it became a day of feasting and rejoicing. This explains why the rural Jews who live in villages observe the 14th day of the month of Adar as a time of rejoicing and feasting. It is a holiday when they send gifts to one another. Mordecai recorded these events and sent letters to all the Jews in all of King Ahasuerus' provinces, both near and far. He ordered them to celebrate the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar every year because during those days the Jews gained relief from their enemies. That was the month when their sorrow was turned into rejoicing and their mourning into a holiday. They were to be days of feasting, rejoicing, and of sending gifts to one another and to the poor. So the Jews agreed to continue the practice they had begun, as Mordecai had written them to do. For Haman, son of Hamidatha, the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them. He cast the poor, that is, the lot, to crush and destroy them. But when the matter was brought before the king, he commanded by letter that the evil plan Haman had devised against the Jews return on his own head, and that he should be hanged with his sons on the gallows. For this reason, these days are called Purim, from the word Pur, because of all the instructions in this letter, as well as what they had witnessed and what had happened to them, the Jews bound themselves, their descendants, and all who joined with them to a commitment that they would not fail to celebrate these two days each and every year, according to the written instructions and according to the time appointed. 
These days are remembered and celebrated by every generation, family, province, and city so that these days of Purim will not lose their significance in Jewish life and their memory will not fade from their descendants. Queen Esther, daughter of Abihel, along with Mordecai the Jew, wrote this, wrote this second letter with full authority to confirm the letter about Purim. He sent letters with assurances of peace and security to all the Jews who were in the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus in order to confirm these days of Purim at their proper time, just as Mordecai the Jew and Esther the queen had established them, and just as they had committed themselves and their descendants to the practices of fasting and lamentation. So Esther's command confirmed these customs of Purim, which were written into the record. King Ahasuerus imposed a tax throughout the land, even to the farthest shores, all of his powerful and magnificent accomplishments and the detailed account of Mordecai's great rank with which the king had honored him, have they not been written in the book of the historical events of the kings of Media and Persia? Mordecai the Jew was second only to King Ahasuerus. He was famous among the Jews and highly esteemed by many of his relatives. He continued to pursue prosperity for his people and to speak for the well-being of all his descendants." So what now? The battle's been fought. Deliverance has been given. Victory stands with God's people. What are they to do now? What do delivered people do? They do two specific things. You do two specific things. What are they? First of all, you remember your deliverance. What do we do now? We remember our deliverance. We bring it to mind often. We put rhythms in our lives so that we do not forget. We remember the deliverance that we have from God. Now, what is it that God's people in Esther's day would have remembered about their deliverance from their enemies? There's any number of characteristics we could highlight just from the opening verses of chapter 9. We can highlight three very simple characteristics that describe their deliverance. It was a deliverance, first of all, that was certain. What I mean by that is that it was never in doubt. If you and I were writing the story, we would have told the story in such a way that all the action would have built until the very end. They would have gone to war. Things would have been in doubt. The hero might have stumbled. There was a part where everything seemed lost. And then all of a sudden, boom, here comes victory. And that's, at the very, that's how you and I would write the story. That's how we want movies to go. We don't want to know how a movie ends at the beginning of it. However, the writer of Esther opens chapter 9 by giving away the end of the story. Look at verse 1 with me. The king's command and law went into effect on the 13th day of the 12th month, the month Adar. On the day when the Jews' enemies had hoped to overpower them, just the opposite happened. The Jews overpowered those who hated them. Why would the author tell the story in this way? Well, I think it's because the victory was never in doubt. There's never a point where we as readers of Esther think, oh man, this is spinning wildly out of control. God's lost track of his people. His, his ability to rescue really is in doubt. No, we've known from the very beginning how this story would go. And so the writer tells it in such a way that you and I would understand the certainty of God's deliverance of his people. That's just how God works all the time. He's faithful to his promises. Now, it's one thing to look at the story and to arrive at a theological conclusion that God's deliverance of his people is certain. But it's another thing to look at the stress or the sin or the suffering in our own lives and to carry that same belief. Uh, 
But this is where our theology has to meet the way we live our lives day to day. You see, you might look at your life or you might look at the world and say, well, how can you say deliverance is certain when the things I see and the things I've heard, they, they feel permanent? But God's people remember this. We are not in glory with God yet. We're still in a world decaying under sin. And so while we live in a world full of sorrows, we know these sorrows have a shelf life. They are all temporary. Every single hurt is temporary. We hold to 2 Corinthians 4.18, which says, We fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is is eternal. Our deliverance from every sorrow, every suffering, every sin, and every enemy is a certain deliverance. Not only is our deliverance certain, it's also supernatural, meaning it is divine. Its origin is in God and not in us. God's people didn't deliver themselves in Esther chapter 9. God delivered them. Here's what I mean. Look at verse 2. It says, in each of King Ahasuerus' provinces, the Jews assembled in their cities to attack those who intended to harm them. Not a single person could withstand them. Fear of them fell on every nationality. Do you see the invisible hand of God in verse 2 as he works deliverance for his people? Why were the Jewish people able to withstand their attackers? Was it because they had superior strategies, superior weapons, superior training, well, the answer to all of those is no. They were victorious because God did the delivering for them. He put fear in the hearts of non-Jewish people, and that fear would have made some enemies run and hide, and it would have made other enemies weak and unable to fight. And now you might make an argument and say, well, the, the Jewish people were organized in some degree, and they used some strategies to, to fight their enemies, and that's true. But keep in mind that the Jewish people are farmers. They're not fighters. They don't have secret ninja schools someplace where they're training up their boys and girls to go to war. They don't have secret stockpiles of weapons. They have farming implements. They have calloused hands. They've got chores to do. And so God is the one who comes to the aid of these common people. And in a way that only he can do, he rescues them. In a divine perfection, putting fear of the Jewish people in the hearts of their enemies. God is the deliverer. And their deliverance was certain, it was supernatural, it was providential. God orchestrated the pieces that made it happen. In verse 3, we're told this, All the officials of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, royal civil administrators, aided the Jews because they feared Mordecai. In verse 2, we saw a God-imposed fear that turned enemies into cowards. In verse 3, we see a God-imposed fear that turns enemies into allies. And how does that happen? Except for the unseen hand of God at work. Even the Jewish people recognize that God is at work in the midst of this warfare. There's a little detail we read over three different times. It may have just flew right by you. The detail was this, that as they defeated their enemies, they did not take any plunder. Three different times in chapter 9 we're given that detail. But what does that communicate to us? It tells us that the Jewish people viewed this conflict as a particular type of warfare. They saw it as holy war. And in Jewish life, there are specific rules for how you carry out holy war. And one of those is you do not take 
the leftovers. You don't take anything. You don't go through their pockets for loose change. You don't take their livestock. You don't claim their homes and property. You do the damage and you walk away and go back to your home. That's what holy war looks like in Jewish life. Now, what's curious about this is that back in chapter 8, you might remember that when Mordecai gives the command allowing the Jewish people to defend themselves, he says in that instruction that they have permission to take the plunder. But we get to chapter 9, and they don't. They choose not to because they understand this ultimately is not a battle for real estate or pennies and dollars. This is a battle for the name and the glory of God. And so they go into this warfare for the sake of the reverence of God with a sense of of surrender to Him. So their deliverance is certain and it's supernatural and it's providential. God is the one working all these things to bring His people out from this threat. And this is what the Jewish people experienced in their deliverance. And it's the same thing you and I have experienced in our own. This is not a one-off time for God to act this way. This is how God has always delivered. And so I wonder, when is the last time you remembered your own deliverance? When's the last time you really sat and thought again about your conversion? Where were you in life? How lost were you? You may have just been a child and you, by the grace of God, were raised up in a Christian home, pointed towards the gospel from the very moment you could speak. Or it may be that you wandered far before God called you back. But every one of us, have you, have you thought about where you were? When, in all the creative ways that God put the gospel in your ear, all the influences he used in your life, what grace he's shown you. When's the last time you shared that story with someone? You have, you have a best friend somewhere. Have, do they know how you came to faith in Christ? Have you told those stories to your grandkids if you have grandkids? Have you written them down for your family to carry with them after you've gone to glory? When's the last time you stopped and you remembered the amazing grace and power of God that delivered you? Not only should you and I remember the deliverance we've experienced as God's people, we have to also remember the deliverance that is to come. In Revelation chapters 19 and 20, we're told of the final two battles between kingdom of God, kingdom of evil. And we kind of have this Hollywood type of expectation for what those battles will be like, long, protracted, fire, all this stuff. And and it it very well could be. But here's what Revelation 19 and 20 show us. In Revelation 19, Jesus defeats his enemies without even getting off his horse. In Revelation 20, the enemies of God's people surround them, ready to attack. They have every advantage. And then God in his providence rains fire from the sky on doesn't seem long and protracted at all. Actually, Revelation 19 and 20 seems like the battles that never were. The victory is certain. It's supernatural. It's providential. The way God saved in Esther 9 is the way he saves ultimately in Revelation 20. We've got to remember not just the deliverance we've experienced, but the deliverance we will experience in the days ahead. This is good stuff for God's people. We have a God who is a deliverer. 
So what should you do now that you've been delivered? You should remember that. That's not the only thing. Second, you should rejoice. We're going to remember our deliverance and we're going to rejoice in our deliverer. So from chapter 9, verse 17 to the end of the book, we have a full description of the origins of the holiday of Purim. Really, that's why this whole book exists, is to explain why there's this holiday on the Jewish calendar. Uh, We're told that Jews in rural areas of the kingdom fought on the one day, but in the capital city of Susa, they fought for two days. Esther asked permission for an extra day to finish the job. It was granted And so they fought for two days, and that's why uh, Purim was originally celebrated on two days, not just on one. Uh, Esther and Mordecai are the ones who gave the command to recognize Purim as a holiday. They put this yearly reminder on the calendar for God's people to rejoice. And what is it that they are rejoicing for? Well, we're told in verses 17 and 18 that the Jewish people celebrated their rest from warfare. This is so important. They, the rest days are the celebration days. It's not a celebration of warfare. It's not a celebration of the downfall of their enemies. It's a celebration of rest. Rest is the reason for the season. Thank you very much. That's why they rejoice. God gave them rest from their warfare. Now, the modern observance of Purim is very similar and maybe a little different from the ancient practice. It's celebrated on only one day, not two days. It normally comes at the end of February, 1st of March. In 2021, it lands on February 26th. There's four traditional components of a Purim observance. One is you read the story, and you get really loud whenever Haman the Agagite is mentioned or when Esther or Mordecai are mentioned. Uh, You give to charity. Uh, You give gifts to family and friends, and you feast. It is a feasting holiday. The story of Esther is covered up in feasts, start to finish. All of this to celebrate, to rejoice in the rest God gave His people. Have you ever stopped to consider how vital the concept of rest is to your own faith? We don't get far into the Bible until we find God resting. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 3, we're told God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy, for on it he rested from all his work of creation. Then in the book of Exodus, we meet God's people who are in slavery. And what is their work like? Their work is brutal and unending. But then God delivered them from slavery. And in Exodus chapter 16, he gave them the Sabbath. The Sabbath rest is then made religious law in the Ten Commandments. So once each week, God wanted His people to rest just as He had rested. Why? This is not just about taking a day off of work, but Sabbath rest is a foretaste of what God's people will enjoy with God in eternity. It was meant to prepare our hearts for the new heaven and the new earth when our hard labor is done. So this begs the question, what are we resting from? Are we merely resting from our regular jobs and responsibilities? That's not quite it. Our rest is directly tied to our experience of sin. Throughout the Bible, there's a connection between sin and restlessness. In Genesis 4.12, after Cain kills his brother Abel, he's told by God, you will be a restless wanderer on the earth. 
In Psalm 95:11, we're told that when God's people broke their covenant with God on their way to the promised land, God said to them, uh, you will not enter my rest. In Psalm 38, verse 4, the psalmist says, my iniquities have flooded over my head. They are a burden too heavy for me to bear. The burden we bear is not a taxing boss and a heavy work schedule. The great burden that we bear is the burden of sin. And the deliverance we need is a deliverance from sin. And so Jesus came to us. And then he gave us this invitation in Matthew 11. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take up my yoke and learn from me because I am lowly and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. How can Jesus make such a promise? Well, he makes that promise because he's God in the flesh. He is the burden bearer. He's the only one who can deliver us from our sin. The prophet Isaiah described Christ's burden bearing this way. In Isaiah 53 verses 4 through 6 He says, he himself bore our sickness and he carried our pains. He was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Do you know the rest of Jesus Christ? Have you put your trust in him? Are you a follower of Jesus? Have you been set free from your burden of sin by trusting in Jesus to save you? If not, then you are someone with a restless soul. You carry guilt and shame for your sin, and you don't have the means within yourself to create relief from that. You need Jesus to deliver you from your burden and to give you his rest. After Jesus died on the cross, he rose from the dead. He's the only one who loves you enough and is powerful enough to deliver you. You were not created to carry that load. You were created for God. We've we've talked time and again about the hidden hand of God in the book of Esther and God's operating in these hidden ways, and that's true. He still does that. That is until Jesus is born, and Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God's hidden presence in the world. He comes to announce that he's hiding no more. He has deliverance, salvation, rescue, forgiveness for you. An early Christian leader named Augustine wrote this. He said in a prayer, You have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless Till they find their rest in thee. We've tried to find rest in so many things. Our wealth, our professional accomplishments, our toys, our addictions, our relationships, even our good deeds. But all of those things make for lousy gods. Jesus invites us to turn from them all and to believe that he alone is the one who gives rest. And so if this is your day to find rest, if you're tired of the noise in your soul, in your restless life, then Jesus invites you to turn from all of that and to trust in him today. When the service is done, I want you to come grab me or Pastor Mike or a trusted friend that you're here with. If I were in your shoes, I would not leave this piece of property without possessing the rest that Jesus Christ has for me. Now, do you know what 
people do once they've entered into God's rest? They rejoice. That's what they do. Praising God is a natural response to experiencing God's rest. In Psalm 68, 19, blessed be the Lord day after day. He bears our burdens. God is our salvation. Psalm 62, 1, I am at rest in God alone. My salvation comes from Him. Psalm 92 has the title, God's love and faithfulness, a song for the Sabbath day. So when should you sing of God's love and faithfulness? On a Sabbath day, when you are experiencing the rest God has given you. And this is the song that God gives his people to sing in their rest. It sounds like this in Psalm 92.1. It's good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praise to your name, Most High, to declare your faithful love in the morning and your faithfulness at night. For you have made me rejoice, Lord, by what you have done. I will shout for joy because of the works of your hands. People at rest in the Lord rejoice. They praise him. They have a song to sing because he's done the work to save. So what do delivered people do? They remember and they rejoice. These are two very simple yet profound practices. Remembering is such a powerful act. There are some things we don't want to remember, some memories that are so difficult that we will bury them deep. But you must never forget your own conversion and the certain deliverance that is yours in Jesus Christ. And how do you remember? Well, you, you don't just remember by accident. You have to build these rhythms into your life. And so you might remember your deliverance by daily reading your Bible. Their deliverance is your deliverance. So you might remember by telling the story, or you might remember by taking the Lord's Supper with your church family. That sort of remembering, it brings courage and hope and joy, even if you're hard-pressed on every side. We have to remember. And what do we do about rejoicing? Well, look, rejoicing is such a countercultural activity. Right now, especially, people love to bemoan the state of things, and we have a lot to bemoan for sure. And so someone might ask you, a Christian, what reason do you have to rejoice? Why would you sing a song of praise today of all days? And that's the easiest question any of us could answer on any day. Jesus Christ called my name, and I answered. I've been set free from sin. I've been delivered from destruction. I've been lifted from the sand and put on the rock. My debt has been paid. My sin has been forgiven. My rebellion is gone. I was so weary and burdened by the sin in my life, but Jesus gave me rest. So I don't see the world through the headlines of the news and the media. I see the world through the promises of my victorious and returning king. And I'm not alone. Because every Sunday, every Lord's Day, every Resurrection Day, I meet with my brothers and sisters to remember and rejoice together. We've got a song to sing, a reason to praise, a God who's delivered us. And that's why God's people rejoice. It is a regular part of our breathing and our blinking and our heartbeats. All that we do, we praise God. Let us walk away from the book of Esther, remembering and rejoicing in the God of our deliverance. Would you pray with me, please? From Psalm 18, I love you. Lord, my strength, you, O Lord, are my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer, my God, my rock, where I seek refuge, my shield, and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. The Lord lives, blessed be my rock, the God of my salvation is exalted. 
You free us from our enemies. You exalt us above our adversaries. Therefore, we will give thanks to you among the nations, Lord. We will sing praises about your name. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, today, we will remember and we will rejoice by taking the Lord's Supper together. If somehow you slipped in super late and if somehow you missed these prepackaged elements, they're on a table out in that lobby. Now would be the time for you to slip out and grab them and come back to your seat. At South Shore Baptist Church, we welcome all followers of Jesus Christ to eat and drink with us. If you're not a Christian, now's not the day to eat and drink because eating this and drinking this does not save you. Rather, this reminds us of the salvation that is ours through the body and blood of Jesus Christ, our trust in Him. So we don't want you to eat and drink and think that this diet puts you in God's favor. Rather, we want you to set your eyes on the cross and to think of Jesus Christ who loves you and has won a deliverance for you if you would turn your life to Him. Now, the tone of the Lord's Supper can change from observance to observance. It's, it's always a very serious matter of worship, and, and we normally take it in a very serious and very quiet way. But, you know, there's nothing in the Bible that tells us that this only has to be serious and somber all the time. And so today, in light of the book of Esther, I intend for us to take this meal with a sense of celebration and rejoicing. You have permission to smile as you eat and drink. It's okay. And so we're going to bookend our Lord's Supper observance with two different songs. We're going to start with a song of remembrance, and then we will eat and drink, and then we will close with a song of rejoicing. And so now it's time to sing, and it's time to remember. Let's stand together as we remember. our sins away slain for us and we remember the promise made that all who come in faith find forgiveness at the cross so we share in this bread of life and we drink of this
would be a lot easier if you would take your mask and just pull it to your chin. And then having done that, if you would take your prepackaged elements, and we're going to start with the bread. There's a flap here on the side. So when you're ready, would you go ahead and open that up and take out your bread? I'll wait just a second, make sure we're all good to go. First Corinthians 11, 23, and 24, Paul writes it this way, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat together. Now would you take the other end of your cup? Would you carefully open the container? (coughs) 
Paul continues in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-five to 26. He says, in the same way also, he took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's drink together. finished drinking, go ahead and put your mask back in place. We have remembered, and now it's time for us to rejoice. And so let's close our service together with some worship and with some praise. And so would you stand with me and let's praise our God who has given us rest in Christ.
Indeed, indeed. Well, it has been a good day to worship. And um, I would like to remind you on your way out, make sure you pick up this sheet uh, just on the outside of the, the doors here. There's lots of information here about what's happening. This is a busy season here at church. Lots going on with youth group, which is still meeting tonight, uh, with young adults uh, Bible study on Thursdays, prayer meetings. Um, I, I need to highlight for us that we are having our quarterly members meeting on December 8th at 730, and information is online. The date and time for that is also in this bulletin, and we look forward to meeting uh, with our membership then. And thank you for your faithful giving and tithing. Uh, those bins are in a slightly different place than normal, but they're just on the outside of the walls when you exit the doors. Uh, following our benediction, uh, please be patient as we have a fairly full room. Uh, let everyone exit uh, the row behind you and start making their way down the aisles before you exit your row. And just social distance and... If you're going to talk with people outside, just make sure you take a few steps away from the doorways so there's a, a clean exit. Our benediction this morning is from Revelation 19. It says, Then I heard something like the voice of a vast multitude, like the sound of cascading waters, and like the rumbling of loud thunder, saying, Hallelujah. Because our Lord God, the Almighty, reigns, let us be glad, rejoice, and give him glory, because the marriage of the Lamb has come. Amen? Amen. Amen. You may go in peace. Amen.